Welcome to the first episode in the Goodwill Hunters Autumn series on the future of the NGO. I'm your host, Paul Ronalds, and in this series, I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. In this first episode, we speak with Annabelle Cruz and Andrew Lee about increasing government restrictions on civil society. These restrictions are not just being introduced in those parts of the world that have only ever enjoyed limited freedoms, but include some of the world's largest democracies. Many governments have used the COVID crisis to give themselves emergency powers, moving them still further away from democracy and placing even greater restrictions on civil society's right to speak publicly on issues critical to their mission. In this antagonistic political environment, we ask, how do NGOs continue to advocate effectively? Annabel Cruz is the founder and director of the Communication and Development Institute of Uruguay and was also the board chair of Civicus. Andrew Lee is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities and the Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT. Prior to this, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University. We hope you enjoy this episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitelam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Annabelle and Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Annabelle, if I can start with you, as chair of Civicus, you've been on the front line of strengthening citizen action and civil society right throughout the world. Do you despair at Freedom House's latest assessment of democracy that downgraded scores in 75 countries, including major democracies, like India and the United States? I do. I do. I agree with that, unfortunately. Uh, civic space is shrinking uh, all over the world. And, um, that's, uh, it has several reasons. Uh, it's a very complex question because civic space is a set of freedom. It's freedom of expression. It's freedom of uh, assembly. It's freedom of association. So um, if we do not have a strong citizen movement, if we don't have a strong civil society sector, that means that civic space is going to shrink. And of course, the pandemic last year, it has been also a lot, maybe excuses to even shrink more that civic space that was already not enough uh, of quality um, and strength for civil society, for citizens to exert uh, their action. Citizens have to have the opportunity to monitor public policies, to contribute to development. And for that, we need strong world resources and accountable organizations. And that's something that 2020 has really shown 
that, that we have a lot of deficits in those areas, indeed. Andrew, if I can pick that point up with you, you're, of course, a member of parliament here in Australia. And from your perspective, um, do Australians take our democracy for granted? Uh, Rachel, I think there is a tendency to do that sometimes. Uh, Australia was a real pioneer in so many aspects of democracy, uh, but increasingly we've seen uh, a decline in the share of Australians participating in the electoral process uh, and an increase in disenchantment with politics. Uh, I was quite influenced by a book uh, by the political scientist Etan Hirsch called Politics is for Power, in which he talks about a trend towards political hobbyism people treating uh, politics as a bit, wa- a bit the same way they treat sports, uh, cheering and jeering from the sidelines rather than recognising that when it comes to politics, we're all on the field. None of us are truly spectators. Uh, hobbyist politics is uh, uh, exacerbated by social media, but it's not just a social media phenomenon. Uh, and one of the great things about uh, activist NGOs is uh, they're not simply engaged in collectivism, um, they're also... Uh, working uh, in, in, with, uh, with those on the ground uh, and mobilising people face-to-face on important issues. Perhaps an obvious question then, Andrew, um, you talked about activist NGOs there, and I would put this question to both of you. With the retreat of democracy that we're seeing globally and, and in Australia, does that make the role of NGOs more important than ever? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I agree with uh, uh, Larry Bartels that we're in, in going through a democratic recession, uh, the only real question now is when that could turn into a democratic depression. Uh, And the the movement towards populism is one which uh, can sow the seeds of of the undermining of democracy. Uh, We've had some important research recently showing that uh, a significant share of the populists who've been elected in the past generation Um, have made changes to the constitution to allow themselves to stay in power uh, or have attempted to uh, stay on beyond their uh, their allowed term. Uh, You know, you look back to uh, somebody like Marcos in the Philippines, uh, he began as a a populist uh, before he uh, entrenched himself as a dictator uh, and that path seems sadly common. Uh, So in that environment with uh, democracy under, uh, under fire, uh, it's more important than ever before to have strong civic voices. Um, I agree with Andrew, absolutely. Um, the roles of civil society is more important than ever, but in some cases it's only part of the speech and not of the reality and not of the actions of the different sectors. So um, for civil society to play its important role in, in strengthening democracy, that has to be acknowledged also for by government actors, by donors, by the uh, corporate sector. And that does not happen that often, unfortunately. Uh, there is sort of um, power imbalances and, and we have to all the time to be thinking in this power shift in, in shifting power to from the decision makers to civil society, stronger civic movements. Donors have to understand that civil society needs a different kind of resources and need autonomy 
and an independence in order to be stronger to act and to propose policies and to monitor policies. So it has to be a sort of agreement, a sort of uh, among the different sectors to give and to recognize the importance of the voices of civil society. And we have many examples in, in 2020 where civil society, civil society organizations were not consulted or informed or their voices taken into account because all this fear uh, brought many authoritarian thoughts and actions. Uh, so um, we have a lot of work to do in the post-pandemic, post which we all hope it comes very soon. Thank you. We've spoken about the terrible situation in Myanmar where people are literally dying at the moment to defend their democracy. And Annabelle, in your part of the world, in South America, there's been many instances where people have lost their lives defending democracy. And I'm really interested, Andrew, you talked about this notion of hobbyist politics. How do we get people off the couch and be more actively engaged? I'm always amazed when I'm speaking publicly and I ask people how many have recently written or gone to see their local state or federal MP, and it's almost zero. And then people uh, complain about politics or political outcomes. How do we get people more actively engaged? Part of it, Paul, is identifying the problem and so reminding people that uh, attacking your enemies on social media is pretty unlikely to shift anyone's views uh, and that if you want to make a difference say, on an issue such as international development, um, you need to find somebody who thinks differently from you and shift their, uh, their opinions. Um, this sounds basic, but it's surprising how many well-informed people think that they're engaging in politics when really all they're doing is shouting into an echo chamber. One of the other things, too, that ETAN emphasises is the importance of the local. Uh, this came up uh, last year in the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, in which some of the activists were saying that they really wanted Trump to get on board uh, on uh, police reform. Uh, and the point that uh, Barack Obama made in a very nice uh, article on this uh, was that very little of policing is done at a federal level. If you're interested in changing policing practices, it's a quintessentially local issue uh, in which uh, activists can actually have an outsized uh, role uh, by turning up at their local city hall meetings and demanding uh, change in policing practices. Uh, that's true too on an issue like climate change. Uh, you may uh, discover that uh, uh, retweeting an, uh, an angry missive on one, one side or the other of the debate is less effective than going along to your local council and looking to shape new developments in a way that they're more environmentally sound. Uh, you then might just be one of 20 people in the room uh, rather than one of several million if you're trying to influence a big policy just at a federal level. Annabelle, you briefly mentioned corporations, and I was really interested to read recently that some US corporations were raising concerns about voting restrictions in some US states. We often identify corporations as being part of the problem, but it looks like in that situation, they were part of the solution. Are you seeing a change in the way corporates are acting based on an increased understanding of the importance of good civic engagement? Uh, there are examples, but there are too few examples, as I see it. Um, corporate can play a, a, a stronger role and a more important role in, in, in this sort of social compact 
in, in order to work together with civil society and with governments for a stronger democracy. Um, in, in these recent times, there have been some examples in Latin America, and I mean, you mentioned this one in, in the US, but uh, I think that are, that are, there is a lot of work to do and improvements to do in that area, absolutely. And I wanted to, to touch something about the, because I think Andrew was talking about the quality of participation, not only about the uh, where you participate or, or, or how. On, so the quality of participation and the quality of those spaces, as it is seen um, in many Latin American countries, governments have opened up um, spaces, let's say, roundtables, um, commissions to talk about certain public policies, but the final decision is not in the, in the hands of civil society or citizens. The quality of that, those spaces remain just in the consultative status and not or informative status. What do they do? What do governments and decision makers do with all that information collected from citizens? Uh, there is a, the OGP, I guess you all know, the Open Government Partnership is uh, global. I mean, it, there are now 80 countries and many local jurisdictions. So that, that the, uh, the point made by Andrew about local governments and local democracy considers that civil society and government have an equal um, place in, in the partnership. And they are striving for uh, giving voice to civil society and governments in designing uh, plans to open government and to open democracy in different countries. And that's a fight for the quality of participation and a fight for giving voice and taking into account the needs and the opinions of citizens. So Annabella and Andrew, with all of this in mind, this acknowledgement that civil space is shrinking due to a number of factors, what does this mean for NGOs and the way that NGOs advocate? Well, I think it uh, means that it's more important than ever before for NGOs to uh, be uh, as active as they can within their mandates, uh, to recognise that uh, it is a great privilege to, uh, to, to have a voice to be able to, to speak out uh, and to use that uh, on behalf of those who can't. Uh, in so many countries uh, where the space of, pre of press freedom is shrinking, uh, you think about crackdowns in places like Russia, China, Venezuela, uh, the non-existent uh, space in North Korea. Uh, if you're an NGO in an advanced country, uh, you have not only a, a platform, but also a, a, in some sense a responsibility to be speaking on behalf of the voiceless. Uh, one of the challenges in Australia, though, has been that in the overseas aid sector, many of the NGOs are quite heavily dependent on Australian government funding. And so when funding was cut, uh, they felt as though they couldn't speak out for fear of being victimised. Uh, the result wasn't that uh, 
their silence bought funding increases uh, uh, and newly emboldened government then went ahead and cut foreign aid spending again uh, because it didn't see much of a, uh, much, much of a reaction. Um, so that's, that's particularly hard when the government is coming to you. I think that one thing that, that has to change and may change and we need to change when, um, when we speak about advocacy, um, civil society advocacy is in terms of our own accountability, our own transparency. Civil society organizations cannot demand transparency from government and from corporation, from corporation if we are not ourselves transparent and accountable. If we do not commit to certain principles and mission and we accomplish those commitments. And I think civil society globally is, uh, and, and locally, um, civil society organizations are aware of this. That rings really true for me, Annabelle. An NGO's legitimacy is absolutely critical to its ability to be able to speak out on issues, to be able to engage with governments, to be able to engage with communities and even able to fundraise. So I think you're absolutely right to call out the importance of accountability. A more antagonistic political environment means we need NGOs to increase their level of commitment to things like transparency and their own legitimacy by having the right sorts of really robust governance systems. In that context, we've seen a range of even well-known brands. Andrew, you mentioned Oxfam's issues in Haiti and other places, uh, and my own organisation, Save the Children, has had issues with uh, its leadership in the United Kingdom. Annabelle, are some of our leading NGOs doing enough to ensure that their legitimacy is as strong as it possibly can be? So uh, I think there are uh, more things that international organizations can do, national organizations and local organizations. And I think the, the, the key question is about power shift, about shifting the power, about which I mean, when international NGOs understand that the voices of the field, it's not all, they, they have to be treated in a sort of paternalistic way, assistential way, but the decision-making have to go to the field and we have to shift power. That will be a turnout point. And so I think organizations can, can be more active in terms of showing that they are legitimate because we are often the question, who do you represent? And often representation is not a source of legitimacy in many organizations, maybe in trade unions or a membership organizations, but our legitimacy and the legitimacy of many organizations has other sources. And one of the sources is this, that power goes to, to the voices in the field and that we and represent those needs. So. Absolutely, there is a lot of work to do in, in this field. Well, I think Annabelle raises an intriguing question, uh, which is that uh, the democratic power base of uh, NGOs isn't as clear as it is for uh, elected governments, where it's clearly the voters, uh, or corporations, where it's the shareholders. Uh, and the degree to which donors are able to have an influence on organisations, even to... Um, 
have cast votes in terms of uh, who will be part of the board really varies a lot across organisations. Uh, some are more transparent than others, some are more democratic than others, uh, and some of the less democratic ones have, have moved that way because of uh, bad experiences with uh, uh, fringe groups trying to, uh, to stay, stage a takeover. Uh, but I think transparency does serve organisations well, uh, particularly when you're dealing with uh, with problems uh, like the, uh, the the scandals that have uh, affected a number of uh, international NGOs over recent years. Uh, it's also really important that organisations are able to justify their uh, their, their structure uh, and uh, and as they uh, as as they engage in in public debates, um, expect that others will say, well, you're calling for more democracy. Uh, but we can't help noticing that your own constitution doesn't look particularly democratic. I'd like to put another Australian-focused question to you, um, Andrew. And Annabelle, of course, feel free to weigh in on this. Um, Andrew, the the Labor Party did uh, recently announce a new national platform on strengthening Australian democracy, um, which did include a commitment to ensuring that charities could advocate on behalf of their cause without fear of being deregistered or losing funding. Um, But in Australia, we do have the protection of the not-for-profit sector Freedom to Advocate Act um, 2013, which already prohibits Commonwealth agreements from restricting or preventing not-for-profit entities from commenting on advocating, you know, support or or opposing changes to Commonwealth law, policy or practice. So in theory, that protection already exists. What additional protections is Labor looking to introduce if they're elected? Oh, Rachel, it's uh, it's not just about having that uh, that prevention of the so-called gag clauses, which are clauses that effectively say, as part of a contract agreement, uh, that an organisation may not advocate. Uh, but it's also ensuring that that doesn't happen uh, in less less formal ways. Uh, so I mentioned before the problems that the international development sector has faced, uh, threats that if they spoke out against funding cuts, then they'd themselves be targeted. Uh, we've seen this in uh, charities that provide assistance to community legal centres uh, being threatened by having their funding cut if they spoke out on law reform rather than just assisting individual clients. Um, there's been a targeting of environmental NGOs uh, by the uh, uh, climate change denying rump in the government, uh, which has seen uh, those NGOs as uh, as overstepping the mark when they talk about broad policy issues around uh, deforestation and climate change, uh, rather than simply going out and planting trees. Uh, and when we uh, moved with bipartisan support to close down uh, foreign donations to political parties, uh, there was a, a very devious attempt to try and uh, wrap into that uh, charities who were clearly uh, doing working with international partners, uh, but there was an attempt to try and shut their work down. Um, so we do need to make sure that right across these sectors that charitable voices aren't just to- tolerated but welcomed into the public square. What we see is that donors often are more preoccupied or concerned about all those due diligence process uh, about the paperwork, about the situation, about the juridical personality and the update, and not about 
the core issues on the, about the results, about the impact of the organization. So something has to change there in terms of that, that has to become a partnership and not a contract in which the civil society organizations in the South perform or act upon the uh, result expected by donors in the North. So, but it has, this dialogue has to be stronger and both parts have to come together and closer in terms of the goals and aims uh, uh, that benefit the people. I think that's a really good point. And despite the opportunity, I'm not going to ask a question on one of my favourite hobby horses, the desperate need for fundraising reform in Australia. Instead, I want to build uh, on your point about effectiveness being in many ways civil society's greatest protection against the antagonistic political environment in which we work. It rings true for me, and my concern, Annabelle, is that the NGO sector is often not doing enough to communicate effectively to the broader public the impact that it's having. Would you agree with that? And do you think NGOs need to be doing much more to promote their effectiveness, not just to achieve their mission, but to actually protect themselves? I think so. And what I see in our countries and also in the North, um, it's that I don't know if taxpayers know exactly um, are really aware of the important work that organizations in the South often do with their money. <laughs> so there is probably lack of communication of results at that first level. Then at the local level, we often um, are critical with ourselves in the way we communicate uh, with the people. Um, because if, if we really uh, we're more successful in communicating what we want to do, what our mission, what we want to achieve, and our impact and result. Probably we would need less money from external donors, and we would find our own sources indigenously inside our country. So, um, at least in terms of knowledge and in terms of um, other resources. So, um, uh, also in, in, in this aspect, a lot of work to do in at different levels. Communication is crucial, it's crucial. I think it's vital that uh, NGOs are doing a, a better job of communicating what they're doing, as, as Annabelle said. Um, but I'm also influenced too by the work that GiveWell.org has done in order to actually look at the direct measurable impact on the, on the ground. Um, it certainly shaped my own charitable giving. Um, GiveWell's uh, analysis suggests that if you want to save a life, then the most effective charities can do it uh, for uh, a tenth or sometimes even a hundredth of the least effective charities. Um, so an organisation like the Against Malaria Foundation, which is uh, Dead Netting Africa, uh, they estimate that something in the order of $5,000 uh, donated saves a life in expectation. Um, that's pretty remarkable to think that for uh, a sum of money, which is uh, uh, a, 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 month's, a month's salary for the typical full-time worker in Australia, uh, you, can you can actually save a life. Uh, and I'd like to see 
more give well style analysis of uh, NGOs in Australia. We don't yet have a, a counterpart to that. So donors tend to, to need to look to the international organisation. Um, that's fine, but as effective altruism grows, we ought to be uh, expanding its model and making it run more deeply in a whole host of other organisations. There was some Melbourne University research a couple of years ago that found that NGOs were increasingly self-censoring themselves due to the perceived repercussions of a particular act. Now, these repercussions could be from inside the organisation, such as how their board or senior management might react, as well as from the outside, uh, such as the perceived risk of, of losing government funding. Annabelle, maybe starting with you, do you think NGOs are self-censoring themselves? It might happen. I, I think it, it, um, often it's because of external factors that demand organisations to that, to that self-centred uh, vision or behaviour. And one is, of course, the relationship with the decision makers, with national governments with all this due diligence process and all this paperwork and all that they have. So it's too much time going to that part and that's its internal work. And it's time that we do not devote to our mission. So, so it has to be, I mean, this people center and relationship with stakeholders and this feedback loop that we have to always have in mind uh, trying to close the feedback loop. We have to be very aware um, uh, about this. And um, of course, donor decision-making governments have also to contribute to this vision of development. Yes, Paul, I, I, I agree with, uh, with what Annabelle said and also the, uh, uh, the risks of self-censorship. I see it in organi kinds of organisations that I speak with um, the challenge that organisations are uh, holding back, not because anyone's told them to hold back, but because they feel as though if they do, then they may jeopardise funding. Uh, but that's a very powerful way in which governments are able to curtail the voices of civil society through these kind of threats that cause people to jump at shadows. I mean, I think to respond to that, that fear of making mistakes and that fear of penalties does seem to be very real in Australia, and rightly so, when we consider, for instance, um, some of the proposed amendments to the Australian Charities uh, and Not-for-Profit Commission's Governance Standard 3, which, Annabelle, you might not be familiar with, but um, what many in the sector have said that it is, is a, is a proposal that will have a really significant effect on freedom of speech in Australia, and it basically broadens the basis upon which the ACNC or our Charities Commission could deregister a charity for advocating. That's a, that's a scary environment to be an NGO. I mean, Andrew, how do you respond to that? One of the things that you, uh, you see very clearly in public debate is that those who have the experience and the coalface can bring some of the greatest insights to public policy conversations, uh, whether that's environmental, legal, uh, or in the uh, development space. Uh, and I can point you to plenty of examples when Labor was last in government uh, in which charities and not-for-profits spoke out against the government. Uh, I might have disagreed with their particular arguments, but I think democracy was the better for their ability to express them. 
I think the other challenge here, though, and Annabelle, I'd be eager to hear your thoughts on this, is that donors are increasingly afraid to fund advocacy as a result of some of these penalties and and, and repercussions. And, you know, we will talk a lot on this series about what donors want to fund and what they don't want to fund, but it is apparent that funding advocacy activities is something that donors are increasingly wary of now. So how do we approach that? How do we make donors feel safe funding advocacy? Well, we need a conversation. We need an agreement. We need uh, we need common goals and and pillars. I mean, we need to agree on the basis. And um, uh, the, the the fear that donors can feel, and and I think these those recent or not so scandals can help to to even more fear, to be afraid of, of, of uh, losing the legitimacy in, in, in the role they have to play. So, um, so I think th- this common work, I mean, and working together with grantees, um, being in contact, establishing the dialogue, I mean, it will help for them, for donors, to be safer, to feel safer. Uh, it, it happens too often that, that a grant is, um, you get a grant, an organization gets a grant, and the next communication is six after six months for a report, and then the final report after one year, and nothing in the, in the middle. So it has to go more work to be in contact, to understand the situation, the context of the country, the organization, where the, the project is being executed, than to the bureaucratic or the bureaucratic parts of international cooperation. Thank you. In just a short time, we've covered a whole range of issues in this podcast that are important to the success of the NGO of the future. Uh, You've highlighted that NGOs need to get braver. They've got to become more accountable and transparent, more focused on impact and better at communicating with key stakeholders. It's a long list. So if there was just one thing that the NGO of the future needs to do, what would each of you say that it was? Measure impact. I think uh, organisations that don't measure impact uh, risk being uh, judged by criteria which are not particularly relevant, such as their administrative overheads. Uh, As we well know, there can be ineffective charities with uh, lean overheads and very effective charities with significant overheads. Overheads are not a good benchmark of of, of uh, what you do. But unless organisations are measuring impact uh, and uh, ideally doing that through conducting randomised controlled trials, and so you have a, a counterfactual, you know what would have happened if the intervention wasn't delivered, uh, then they're going to struggle for donations against other organisations that really can prove their impact, that can show that if they weren't rolling out their programs, the world would be tangibly worse. Um, so let's raise the bar on impact. Uh, that'll be good institutionally for those organisations, but most importantly, it'll be good for the global poor. Well, I think that that's that I agree with that, but I think that's also part of the of 
the organization's accountability. Accountability is also about measured impact and going to the core and to the important issues, not about bureaucratic, but to the results and to the benefits and how you improve the lives of the people you work with or you represent. Andrew, Annabelle, that's a great start to this podcast series. It really sets the scene for future episodes. So thank you to both of you. Yeah, I feel also privileged. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Annabelle. I hope you enjoyed our first episode in the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series on the NGO of the Future. Look out for our next episode in the series exploring the NGO business model of the future with Joe Barraquette and Audet XL.